Hello and welcome to the One Hope Podcast, where faith and life connect. A podcast done by One Hope Church in Gig Harbor, Washington. Enjoy! Well, we did it, One Hope Church and One Hope friends. We finished this uh, Lenten podcast journey through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, thank you for going on this journey uh, together with us. It's been a rich time. Uh, and thank you all to the, our podcasters for, for participating with us in this. And um, this is going to be a very short podcast uh, to, to wrap up here. And it's also going to be very long. <laughs> You're, it's going to be very short of what I'm going to say. And then I'll, I'll share a little bit more what it, how it's going to be long. Uh, but it's, it's the end of the Gospel of Mark. And he ends, as most of the Gospels do, with, with the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus says, as he has risen from the dead, he says, now go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And he, and he speaks of, uh, of how uh, signs and wonders will accompany the church as it, as it goes forth in this way and calls people to, be, to believe and to be baptized for salvation and to be saved from condemnation. And, and, uh, and then these final verses, verse 19 uh, and 20 last verses of the gospel. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. <laughs> and we've been looking at that in our Hebrews uh, series uh, during the time that this podcast has given. We've been going to the book of Hebrews in, in uh, at One Hope Church, and we've been looking at this picture of Jesus as our great high priest who has sat down. He's finished his priestly work. There's no, nothing more to do as far as his priestly work. Um, but in that place, then, then he calls us to to go forth and to take that message of, of salvation to the ends of the world and preach the gospel everywhere. And then verse 20, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. And that last verse, um, that's a long verse. It's a 2,000-year-long verse because they went out and preached everywhere is, is them, but then they told someone, and, and the person they told someone told, told someone, and, and they had kids, and they were raised in the faith, and they went out, and they preached to someone whole, totally different, and they came to faith, and then they went to cross an ocean and learned a language to communicate to another people group, and they believed, and signs and wonders accompanied, and the gospel went forth into all the world 2,000 years later. Here we are in Gig Harbor, Washington, which is where One Hope Church is based and the, uh, and we have heard the message too, and we are commissioning ourselves and continuing to preach the message. And just last night uh, at our church, we had a Good Friday service in which seven young people between the ages of 14 and 21 preached the gospel, continuing verse 20 of Mark chapter 16. And so as we close this podcast out, uh, let's uh, let's hear and listen to the continuation of the Gospel of Mark, which does not end, did not end in chapter 16. It continues on to this present day. Uh, thanks again for being part of this podcast. Let's listen to these words of these reflections on the seven words of Jesus spoken from the cross. It's the Gospel, according to the young men and women of One Hope Church. They crucified him along with the criminals one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Jesus was not talking, just talking about the soldiers who put him on the cross. But graciously, he declares forgiveness and freedom for all people forever. Something that I've been learning this year repeatedly is how easy it is to follow Christ. I don't mean to say that my life has been smooth sailing, but God has offered to carry all my burdens and worries. He does not invalidate my anxiety or pain when someone does wrong, but he asks to be the one to deal with those because he knows what I feel and is the best source of rest and comfort in trials. So when someone has hurt you, you cannot forgive them out of the goodness of your own heart. No amount of self-discipline will help us forgive others and move on. That only causes us to get burnt out, and I certainly have come to hold a lot of grudges trying to do this. True forgiveness comes from a place of accepting the forgiveness God has given us and asking God to forgive those who sin against us, not just us trying to forgive them on our own. God has to be the one to shape our heart and in turn shapes our thoughts, words, and deeds. It is only out of the goodness of God's heart that any of us can be forgiven, even those that we want to forgive. That is good news because God truly desires for us all to find freedom in his forgiveness. So we just have to accept his forgiveness daily and let the joy from knowing that we are his pour out onto those around us. Criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. In the depths of our mortal pain, in the darkest spots of our lives, we can look to our left and to our right and see Jesus there. He's hanging on the cross for our sins. He isn't just hanging in there like those silly cat cards and posters. He's to our left and to our right, hung there for our sins. The radical part of the story of the cross is how Jesus holds no resentment for his crucifixion. At the last moment, at the darkest hour, Jesus will take us. Jesus will welcome us with open arms. It's a common anecdote, but if you or I were the last people left alive on earth, he would still die for us and do it all again. I recognize that as a young adult, I don't have the same life experiences and difficulties as many of you in this room. I know that there are troubles and trials to come. One thing my house church will tell you about me is that I am in the midst of the college process. These years ahead of me, the time of early adulthood, is often known as a time of impermanence. New schools, new friends, short relationships, and quick phases will come to all of us who are speaking to you today. However, the constant reassurance is that no matter my plan, my trials, or my triumphs to come, Jesus is there to my left and to my right. And most importantly, one day soon, I too will be with him in paradise. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Colpus, and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, Behold your mother. Mary is Jesus' mother, and the um, son is Jesus. Um, Jesus has always been kind of a father or a parent figure to the disciples and has led them through their path of life and has helped them make decisions easy or difficult. But now, since he's going away, he's handing that job over to his mother. This makes me think about my life and how my family has been a big role model in my life. Whenever I get a new friend, all I want to do is treat them like family. Whether I've known them forever or they have just entered my life, all I want to do is make sure they're okay. <laughs> Whenever I get home from school, they ask, How's that, how, how is this person doing? Or, do they have a good day today? Whether, um, whether they've seen them that day or whether they haven't, they always want to make sure they're doing good 24-7. Another verse that talks about family is Psalm 120, 3-5. It says, children, uh, children, are, children are reward and offspring are the greatest gift you'll have. Uh, in other words, um, children are the most important gift that you will ever have. Family will be there no matter what, whether it's direct family or family that you can, or friends that you consider family. They will stick with you when it matters. They will help you through tough times, and they will love you, whether it's a family friend, a sibling, a cousin, or a spouse. If they really love you, then they will truly show it to you. Even if you're having a tough time with them, you can always look back at memories, good memories that you've had with them, and it'll show you the love that they have. Family's the greatest reward, and we get the gift of sharing a family with Jesus. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabithia, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words struck me like a knife because it was not long ago that I too felt that way myself. Back in junior high, I was weak. I was bullied, and during that time, I said the words, God give me strength. I know I should have been more careful with those words, because after I said those words, my world got only worse. My best friend became hypocritical, and my mental health deteriorated. From there, my world felt godless. For Jesus, that feeling of being forsaken must have been exponential because he had the closest and most intimate relationship with his father. The same father who turned away from him and placed all our sins on his shoulders for our forgiveness. 
However, despite this, he was also not truly betrayed, for there was another reason for this cry. He was also proclaiming his faith in God, for he was also quoting a psalm, the psalm of David, another man who also felt weak, just like me. David said in Psalm 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in Psalm 6, But I am a worm, not a man. And in Psalm 12 through 13, Strong bulls of Banshan encircle me. Roaring lions tear their prey, open their, mild, open their mouths wide against me. However, he found his strength in Psalm 22. I will declare your name to my people. In assembly, I will praise you. And in 25, he says, From you who comes to theme of my praise, and in, in the great assembly before those who fear you. The whole Psalm of David shows that his troubles were nothing but a test, a test of faith. And he found his strength in this proclamation. Once I realized I too was being tested, I too gained strength. When my best friend came back to me in shame, I forgave him. When bullies tormented me, I learned to hold my ground no matter what. And I believe it was God who wanted me to learn these lessons. A blacksmith can't harden metal without forging it with a hammer, nor sharpen a sword without grinding an edge. And I would argue God here was a blacksmith and Jesus was the sword. No, is the sword, the sword that is to bring an end to sin. Knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Firstly, Jesus was thirsty, plain and simple. Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. And as a human that had been agonizing for hours on a cross, his body must have been exhausted and dehydrated. So he, he requested his last drink before death. Secondly, he had to fulfill scripture. Throughout this scene, we see direct connections to Psalm 22. In his words spoken, the piercing of his hands and his feet, and in the actions of the onlookers. But this particular scripture that was fulfilled is from Psalm 69:21, which states, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. This shows that the Old Testament and the Psalms are not just history. They're not just the story of the Israelites and Moses. They are the prelude to Jesus and his sacrifice for us. Finally, I see this statement as an acceptance of God's will. In Mark 14:36, we see Jesus praying in the garden the night before his death. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus did not want to die. 
If there was any other way for us to be saved without his death, he probably would have chosen that. But that cup was his to drink from. And by him saying, I thirst, it was an acceptance to do so. An acceptance of the sour, bitter, undesirable wine. And I don't know about you guys, but I struggle a lot with control. If everything that ever happened could be told to me beforehand, and if I could give little bits of input, then everything would be like 20 times easier. But that's not how it works. And this was a big conviction for me. And if the almighty creator of the universe, savior of the world, could submit to God's will, then so shall I. When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Simple, right? It is finished. But what is finished? What is it? I thought about this and I realized it can be many things. Jesus could mean that prophecy is fulfilled. It is finished. He has fulfilled the last piece of prophecy. As is mentioned, Jesus' thirst was the last piece of Psalm 22. It could also be his life. When Jesus says, it is finished, he gives up his life. His life is over. His time on earth as a man has come to an end. His ministry is complete. Jesus could also be talking about his sacrifice. He speaks the words that give up his life. He dies for our sins. He is the sacrifice made for us, and his sacrifice is sufficient. Once and for all, it is finished. There is no more need for any more sacrifice. But there is another way to look at this. It could also be the war between God and Satan, the struggle between darkness and light, the fight between life and death. The sacrifice of Jesus means that he has conquered death. The war is over. It is finished. But how can it be finished if we are not in heaven living in peace with God? How could it be finished if there is still sin, if we are still on earth and there is still sin? As we heard this week, Hebrews chapter 10 says, But when Christ has offered uh, for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies could be made a footstool for his feet. In Revelation, Scripture describes a battle still to come. If the war is not over, how can it be finished? Well, to answer that, you have to look at what finished means. Finished means done, over, kaput. It means that it is complete. And, but this meaning is not only used in the present, but also in the future. When something is certain to be finished, it is also said to be finished. Finished can mean inevitable. I like football. You see, you see this meaning in football in, all, in football games all the time. When a team is up by a lot at the end of a game and there isn't much time left, uh, both teams know it's pretty much over. Fourth quarter, two minutes to go, you have the ball and you're up by 14. The only thing left to do is run out the clock. Game over, we win, time to go home. But before you can go home, you have to play it out. The only problem is there's another team on the field and they probably don't like to lose. 
There are two types of teams that you run into, the classy team and the goons. The classy team keeps playing, but they admit defeat. These guys will let you run the clock, but they say, good game, and start preparing for next week. Then you have the goons. When they know the game is over, they try to hurt you. They take cheap shots and go down swinging. They know they can't win, but they can make it painful for you to finish the game. That is exactly the type of player Satan is. He will turn people away and prolong the game as long as he can because he knows when the clock runs out, there is not another game for him. His career is over. It is finished. The clock may still be running, but the game is over. And that gives me hope. Satan is trying to prolong it as long as he can because he knows he has already lost. Even though there is more to come, the fight isn't over. And the fight isn't over. It is inevitable. And that gives me hope and peace that even though it hasn't happened yet, someday I will live in peace with God for eternity. Any good coach will tell you, when you're in a game like this against the goons, you have to be careful. They're going to try to hurt you. Don't lower yourself to their level. They have nothing to lose, but you have everything to lose. Don't take unnecessary risks. Be on your guard. And in the Bible, our coach tells us to do the same. 1 Peter 8-10 through 10, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It is finished. It was now the sixth hour, and the darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus is once again referencing a psalm, Psalm 31, a poem singing of intense trust and colossal hope, despite the daunting circumstances of deceit and overwhelming enemy forces. David, the author of this psalm, is describing the enemies, perhaps physical, perhaps spiritual, that are closing in on him. Yet amidst these words of fear, David declares that God is his refuge and his safe haven. This quote isn't just a plea for help, but rather a simple letting go and understanding that this is beyond me, beyond any of us. And that whatever we can't handle, God can and God will. In the midst of his pain and suffering, Jesus' spirit reaches upward for relief with a strong confidence in the one who alone is a worthy refuge. Perhaps this is one of Jesus' greatest teaching moments he gave us before his death. Not a lesson on discipleship or physical healing, but rather a simple statement of complete trust. 
He had previously taught a similar lesson about the security of believers, saying in John 10, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. His arms are the only true and secure refuge we have in this world. And it is the only refuge we need. And he is always there. Despite the spiritual, physical, or emotional fire you may be walking through right now, God is there. Despite the stormy night that may be covering your spiritual life, God is there. Despite the fear that has taken hold of your life and will not let go, God is there. He is ready with arms outstretched, waiting for you to call to him, ready to come to your rescue, maybe not in the way that you expect or that you have planned out, but in the perfect way. Giving us an example of perfect trust, Jesus trusted his Father with his entire spirit, his breath, his body. Yet Jesus meant so much more than his physical life when he uttered this quote. Everything Jesus had, he committed to the Father. His ministry, his love, his church, his people, us. Despite the darkness that had surrounded the land for a long three hours, despite the mocking voices of his enemies, despite the crushing pain he was under in the last few moments before his death, Despite the separation he felt for the first time from his father, Jesus summoned one final breath to declare a faith-filled statement of complete trust. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit.